0: Blaze TV host and best-selling author Steve Dace joins us this week to talk about everything. Sit back and learn from Steve's compelling analysis on the border to our own backyard. My name is Kevin Cookagee and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast.
1: Clearly, and he's, he's even <laughs> dressed for the occasion. By oh, the way, my. yes, yes. He, here in the uh, Michigan Navy blue. Congratulations,
0: Steve! And I'm a Penn State fan, so I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, <laughs> theater of the mind, as we always talk about. Uh, our guest, our very famous and uh, important guest, Steve Dace, is wearing Michigan <laughs> University of Michigan shorts today, I which represent. is awesome. Yes, so congratulations! Welcome to the studio. Gosh, best-selling author, Blaze TV host, uh, film producer. What else can we add to that, Gary? I don't know. Malcontent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Miscreant. Yes. Well, and very much at home, I think, here on the Freedom Matters podcast and everything we've got going on here in Tennessee. And so we're excited. We've been talking about the Freedom First event for a long time and excited to have uh, Steve here with us as our keynote. And because, I mean, man, you're someone just around the, the country that I look at That's never been afraid to tell the truth at all, even if it was what some might surmise would be your own detriment, you know, or whatever. The Mm -hmm. at any cost, uh, you're a truth teller, and uh, you always commit politics from a uh, biblical worldview, which uh, we appreciate. And yeah, not not afraid to uh, not afraid to hit the right from the right, which is exactly what we're trying to accomplish here in Tennessee. So, in any case, uh, welcome, Steve. thankful to have you it's a pleasure to be here man i
2: I love this place i love this community every time i've come to this state um you know um i i just i i love tennessee and it's not pandering i don't even know how to pander i couldn't do it if i tried (laughs) so it's just a it's it's a phenomenal place i love it here
0: wait one housekeeping item Mm -hmm. why do we play michigan for you when you live in iowa to help our audience understand why you're a michigan fan when everything you've done professionally has been from the state of iowa We moved around a
2: lot when I was a kid. I went to eleven different elementary schools, uh, or eleven different schools, K through twelve, in like a half dozen different states. Uh, And and we, uh, even though I was born in Iowa, I've lived. We lived in Iowa like two or three different times. My my dad was in, uh, my stepdad uh, who raised me was in uh, construction during that era. And, uh, you know, you had the Jimmy Carter era malaise. Mm -hmm. So you were moving when he got out of the Navy, you were moving to where business was good. And then you had the Reagan boom. So you're moving to where business is good, you know, and we eventually settled my uh, teenage years in Michigan. And uh, that's where I became... An absolutely obnoxious Michigan fan, <laughs> which is a redundancy because there is no other kind. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And uh those would have been
0: like Beckler years, yes. right?
2: Yep. We we've moved to Michigan uh Thanks the and, and settled there Thanksgiving weekend or the weekend before Thanksgiving. Uh and when I was in the fifth grade and uh So Ohio State game, right? Yep. And I <laughs> I just turned on the TV. I'd fall I we were living in Florida before this. And I had fallen in love with football in Florida, mainly because you I mean it was a ninety eight degrees every single day. And so you're looking to come inside and you know get out of the heat sometimes. Right. And I had just fallen in love uh watching uh football and I'm looking for a football game. We moved back as a kid and uh the very first game I see is the nineteen eighty three Michigan Ohio State games on TV and the winged helmets and yeah. uh, and the fight song and you know, I mean, I
0: was I was in from that from that point on. Well, again, congratulations. I say that uh, with the belief that Penn State will never win a national championship with James Franklin as their head coach. (laughs) I'm just saying.
2: I will tell you, (laughs) I had completely given up that we were ever going to beat Ohio State again. I mean, I I went through 20 years of humiliation. 20 years. And in 2021, I finally just said, I've had enough. I can't do this again. The previous 2019 and 2018— they didn't just beat us, man. They emasculated mm-hmm. us. Like it was humiliating. Like, like my son almost had given up on being a Michigan fan. It was so. <laughs> it was such a beatdown. And so, 2021, man. I made. A, I, I'm. I bought my tickets. I'm gonna go see Kong versus Godzilla. I'm not doing this again. And I'm gonna. I'm gonna DVR it just on the off chance they pull this thing off. Okay. And my son was gonna come with us, and at the last minute, this is a reoccurring thing. He has more testicular fortitude than I do, okay? (laughs) Because he's finally like, dude, I can't. I can't do it. I got to stay home for the game, all right? And I kind of, we get home from the movie, and I mean, I've got the phone off. I don't have a clue what's going on. Radio's off. I'm not taking texts. Nothing, okay? And we get home from the movie. I kind of think maybe when he's standing in the garage, like, waiting for me,
0: okay? Something's happening. Yeah, and, and,
2: (laughs) and, 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 and Amy gets out of the car. Don't say a word to your dad. Okay. And so I run downstairs to turn it on and I watched it on DVR in real time. Uh, and, uh, I just, I was convinced we were never going to beat him again, you mm-hmm. know? And now three in a row. Yep. And then we, we got to go to the Rose Bowl and, uh, you know, doing what you mentioned, Gary has not has, you know, i I make a good living, but I've not gotten rich doing this because I, I do tell too many people things they don't want to hear. Right. Uh, but what it ha what I have, you know, God has really blessed me with networks of people. That have opened up doors, and one of them, uh, a guy called me uh, out of, or emailed me out of the blue a few years ago, who is the general manager of the Rose Bowl and the UCLA Athletic Network. Paul Engel is his name, and he's a huge fan of the show, and uh, he said, listen, man, you guys kept me saying during COVID. If there's ever a time that any of your teams come out here, all right, You, I, I mean— I I will give you guys carte blanche red carpet treatment out Hmm. here on the house. You just got to make your way out here, you know, but we'll make it happen. That's great. And uh, he sent me, Todd and Aaron, the two guys that uh, work for me, that do the show with me. There's commemorative bricks, like there are outside of a lot of stadiums where donors and stuff, you know, that made stuff happen. He put commemorative bricks for each of our families. At the path of the Rose Bowl, really, and then sent us replicas of those to put on our front porch. So I've wow. got one on the front porch in my house. So you're actually permanently now, yes. ensconced in front yes. of the Rose Bowl. And so we, he, and he, he was a man of his word. He led us. He was. We were his guests for the Rose Bowl this year against Alabama. And it was an incredible trip. He gave us a VIP tour, took us into the suite that Disney spent $150,000 to rent for the game. Wow. Uh, the day before, we got great seats on the tunnel. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, it was just an incredible experience. The game was incredible. Oh gosh, right down to the mean, wire. It was. And, and I was going to go too. I was like, There's, this traffic's going to be impossible. We're going to blow another Rose Bowl. I can't do it again. And again, Noah steps up, man. He's got more courage than this old man. Noah stepped up and he goes, we can't. We got to see this through to the end. And he ended up being right. And Michigan pulled that comeback there at the
0: end and then went on and won the Natty. Well, that's great. Now you lose your coach, so... That's another story. I don't care if we're six and six for the next five years, yeah, man. Got, As a
2: Michigan fan, and you know this is a Penn State fan, we have gone through a lot of meaningless nine and 10 win seasons that look good on the all time record sheet, but there's no championships or
0: banners at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. Very unsatisfying. In fact, I hate, and then Gary will get to politics. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I, I just hate, hanging out. Yes, I, I'm sure an audience <laughs> in Tennessee is completely
2: offended we're talking yeah, college 10 football. <laughs> yes.
0: No, but that is the problem that's why i started this segment by saying penn state will never win a national championship as long as james franklin is a head coach we've become satisfied with 10 win seasons Mm -hmm. but we can't beat ohio state anymore we can't beat michigan anymore and of course they're not going to win the national championship
1: so all right gary well you you just you mentioned uh (laughs) you know the opportunity you got to go to the rose bowl and this fan and that he seemed like he came into the to the audience through covid Mm -hmm. and I would just question, outside looking in, it seems to me, would you say professionally, did your audience sort of kind of exponentially increase? Was there a market turn during COVID? Because you were you were one of the, I think, few at the beginning contrarians. Right. Did that propel the show?
2: You know, there's a, uh, um, you guys are probably familiar with Salem Radio. They're mm-hmm. the biggest Christian media company on the continent, and yep. they gave me my start. in in syndication, in syndicated radio. And the head of their programming, Phil Boyce, I mean, he took me aside one day. He basically discovered Mark Levin. He discovered Sean Hannity. And he's like, I think you're going to be my next discovery but he said you, each one of these guys had an inflection point for Mark Levin it was the Clinton impeachment and he was one of the DOJ attorneys involved in right. that and so Rush would talk about him and Hannity would have him on a show and and that's how that was his inflection or his tipping point okay yeah. for Sean Hannity it was that he was you know literally broadcasting from on the ground in New York post 9/11 mm-hmm. okay and 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 so he he was always wondering for me to have that kind of a breakthrough you know, there would what would be that kind of in you know tipping or inflection point. And for me, I can look at my career, and there are three moments that that clearly God or used to to move me up the food chain. Uh, the first was Mike Huckabee's caucus campaign in 2008, when I was really brand new at this and had no idea what kind of true power a statewide 50,000-watt radio station like News Radio 1040 WHO could accomplish, and it was almost by accident. Um, you know, it, it basically permitted me to do—I mean, Mitt Romney's campaign told—I I, want to say it was Byron York at the time who was at National Review, right. but it was somebody at National Review. They told them afterwards that they thought my radio show was worth $2 million in oppo research against them. And in, a, and, in a, and, in a, and in a state like Iowa that has only one major television market, that's, an in, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And basically what they said was that my show did all the Apple research that either Mike Huckabee's campaign didn't have the money to do, wow. or if they did, maybe didn't have the guts to put that out there. Uh, and... and I remember the morning after the 2008 Iowa caucuses, and I was getting a lot of heat for advocating for Huckabee as vociferously, but right. it was very strange for me. It, you know, my, my wife, you know, when we first started dating, she read Rush Limbaugh's The Way Things Ought to Be, okay, to get to know me better, mm-hmm. all right? And so now I'm on the same station that was one of the first stations when Rush launched August 31st, 1988. One of the first, one of the Heritage Radio stations was 1040 WHO. Ronald Reagan was our first sports director. All right, yeah. so I'm on this fifty thousand watt radio station. My my childhood idol's on before me, mm. and I'm in the studio for an hour, but you know, getting my show ready, listening to him just blow Mitt Romney up as the next Reagan, trash Mike Huckabee as some kind of West German-style Christian socialist. This was kind of surreal to me. And then I come on the air and I'm saying the exact opposite, <laughs> opposite to the exact same people. You know? And so there was a there was a lot of heat. I was a nobody at that point. Yeah. And the morning after the caucuses, my general manager calls me into his office and says, says, Hey, congratulations on your big win last night. And I said, Hey man, I, I wasn't on the ballot. He goes, Oh, yeah, you were. And on his desk, <laughs> on his desk, he he always kept the WHO coverage map. All right because it's a legendary radio station. And then he took the front page of the Des Moines Register, which had the county-by-county county results of the caucuses, and he laid it out over his coverage map, and, you, and what you saw was an exact replica. Hmm. Uh, Who signal is very vertical, mm-hmm. so you're going to hear it better in Minneapolis than in Sioux City out west in uh, western Iowa. And so out western Iowa, where there was no WHO coverage, is where Mitt Romney won. Hmm. Everywhere else in Iowa, where there was uh WHO radio coverage is where Huckabee mm. won. I mean it was a it was a perfect match. And that that was where I a lot of people then Fox News started profiling me as a right. guy, you know, Huckabee secret weapon. The second one was the cruise campaign, particularly Caucus Night itself yep. mm. when Ted gave me a personal shout out and my phone just absolutely blew up. And that was another one. And then, uh, but the third, those two pale in comparison to what COVID did. Uh, I mean, COVID took our show, our audience grew by like 600% in a year. Wow, hmm. okay. And I will tell you that I actually thought that COVID was going to be the end of my career. And here's why. When President Trump did the 15 days to flatten the right. curve, there was a handful of us, the same handful of us that were pushing back against this a national media that were, we were, I mean, we were talking to everybody we know in the Trump white house or people we know that could get us into the Trump white house to try to stop them from Mm -hmm. what they were doing and to take a deep breath and look at data, let some things play out, understand, you know, you're talking about potentially irrevocably wrecking a country Mm -hmm. here. All right. With no real data to show you. And this, and this simulation that was done by, um, imperial college i that was that was the first time i've always wanted to do you know the focus of our show has always been a biblical worldview we went national because a group of christian businessmen came to me similar to rush limbaugh where they found uh this guy in sacramento california a group of christian businessmen in iowa came to me and said hey we saw the impact you're having in our state and we're wondering if we put capital around you could you do this nationally but you'd have to figure it out yourself cuz we don't know how to run a radio right. we just we you know we own other companies and so they gave me seed capital to move on and then i had to you know by god's grace build this show kind of from scratch and our mission always was our prime directive always was has rush brought conservative thought back into the mainstream of 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 the public square was to try to use the platform that we would build and the talent God gave me to bring a biblical worldview back into the mainstream of mm-hmm. the public square. That that was always the goal, but I I never really thought openly about like spiritual warfare and stuff in my show until COVID. Mm. And I I experienced it in my own basement the night that the lockdowns began. Um, I won't give you names, but they're people you would know that are very highly respected and, does, and they're friends of mine in and, and our business. And they were privately DMing me and texting me because I was looking at the data and stuff out of Italy. And I'm like, it doesn't match the panic. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what's going on. And they're privately DMing me and texting me saying, Steve, you're wrong about this. You need to reconsider your position about this. It's a life and death situation. And they finally sent me the Imperial College survey that was released to the public. It had been given to the leaders of the free world, like the week prior to convince them all to shut down. Cause originally the UK was not going to shut down. Mm-hmm. Originally Boris Johnson was going to pursue a Sweden strategy. And this was the simulation that convinced him to not do that. And then all the other Western countries fell in line except for Sweden. And so I'm sitting in my man cave in Des Moines and I'm reading this Imperial college survey and I'm, and my kids, I can hear my kids and stuff upstairs. And I'm, I mean, I'm thinking this is the zombie apocalypse. We're doomed. We're doomed. You know, and I mean, as a dad and a husband, my heart sunk, you know, and, Mm. and it, you know, there's only been a few times prior to COVID that I think I can pinpoint that I could hear the Holy Spirit audibly communicate to me. One was when I, uh, after I got saved, I decided to sit down and watch Kill Bill volume one and two, and I put in the DVD player and it was so vile and disgusting that I could literally hear the Spirit saying to me, why are we watching this? Mm-hmm. And I just got up and turned it off, mm-hmm. and never turned it back on. This was one of the few times. And I heard that little small voice in the back of my head say, you need to research Jeremy Grantham and then go back and read this again. And so I, I'd never heard the name Jeremy Grantham. I never, I remember the character Jeremy Bentham from Lost, yeah. okay, which is a literary <laughs> reference uh, or a historical reference, but I didn't know who Jeremy Grantham was. And, and so I started doing research on this Jeremy Grantham and boy, howdy. This is a caricature of the climate cult, like if we drew it up ourselves, like if we were coming up with our own polemic to take down the, the climate cult, who is the kind of billionaire Soros-like figure that we would create to kind of be the, the man behind the scenes that is really pushing all of this with his thumb on the scale? He is Jeremy Grantham. He's one of the world's richest men. He keeps a very low profile. He believes that we have been fighting a 250-year war against carbon fuels. And, and it just so happens, guess what institution he is the primary Miss Havisham level of benefactor of? Imperial College. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's an entire wing of Imperial College <laughs> named <laughs> after, after Jeremy him. Grantham. And then I found out. Then I found that Jeremy Grantham, th- that, that his institution at Imperial College had quietly put out a, a subsequent corollary to the Imperial College study, which I read and it said and it basically says now that we are at this moment that the world has to pause this is the perfect time to usher in a green a green there a, a, for a green a green new deal for <clears throat> lack of a better description right. and and because now is the time to take advantage of this moment that we have all right and then you start doubting yourself because you're like, okay, how can one guy in West Des Moines know this and like no one else does? All right. I mean, how, how could one guy have f- found this out and everybody else is just, you know, in a panic right. and because I don't want to, I'm not that arrogant to think that, you know, that maybe I've stumbled on something no one else has. So I start sending this around to people I know and respect. And I'm like, hey man, am, am I onto something with this? And then I went back and I read the Imperial College survey again. And it's interesting when you read something emotionally and then when you read it logically, Mm -hmm. all right? So I'm getting all this pressure from names you would know, I'm wrong, I go and finally read it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're just, we're done, we're devastated here, okay? Then I've had a break of time. I've done this ancillary research, and I go back and I read it again. And the funny thing is, you notice something right there in the opening of the survey that I didn't catch the first time. The survey admits it does not know how coronavirus is spread. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I mean, well, I mean, okay. I mean, explain to me then how we are going with a survey on the spread of coronavirus that admits in the survey it doesn't know how coronavirus is spread. Seems like that's step one. I would think, you would think, you would think. (laughs) And that's not. but now I've got now here's the thing though. Now I'm attached to a really large company called The Blaze. And I mean, if if I color too far outside the lines, I could cost a lot of a lot of I mean, this is a company that has a hundred full time employees. They've got pensions, health insurance. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so I've gotta now I've gotta make sure my own they're not technically my bosses. I own the show, but it's their platform. Mm-hmm. And I wanna make sure that, you know, I'm not, you know. I'm going the speed limit. Right. And so the first weekend before I came out publicly and really pushed back, Tyler Carden, our CEO, and Gaston Mooney, our president, the three of us were basically on the phone together that entire weekend going through all of the data together, going through the questions together. I I mean, I was throwing them, I mean, hey, challenge me, push mm-hmm. back on me, what am I missing, okay? And after that, we they they thought that it was very likely that I had, I was, at the, at the least- had discovered there was, a, um, there was prima facie evidence here that not everything was on the up and up. Right. But we also made the calculation to start to question things rather than declaring things, just asking questions all right, that there were no answers to. So if you go back and you look, for example, the first column I wrote at The Blaze questioning COVID, it was a series of questions. Mm. And so we're trying to go to the Trump White House now and and to convince them to, to end this, to not do another 15 days. And I went to church that Sunday morning when the 15 days to flatten the curve were supposed to expire the next Monday. I went to church that Sunday morning, giddy. Based on everything I'd been told, and you could hear what the the president now is talking about. Hey, you know, maybe we'll have another resurrection for Easter. We'll get the country back going, and it's it's pretty clear that we have penetrated that bubble. All right, I get home from church, and I and I just start checking Twitter, and I see what's going on with all the Sunday shows, and I see Burks and Fauci and everybody was out. Well, the president was going to go and end this, but we convinced him not to. And, and I, and so that's when they did 30 days to slow the spread. And I, that I went into work that Monday morning and I said to Todd and Aaron, my, my my employees who do the show with me, I said, you know, I went through this with Trump in 2016 I don't have another, let me spend a, an indefinite amount of time fighting my own base again. I, I, I don't. I'm be, I, I beat my head against that wall and I'm scared to death with the, what our base is going to do now that President Trump is saying that we have to put this thing on hold indefinitely. All the people that right now are cheering me on for doing this are now going to come back and they're going to call me a traitor and everything else because clearly he must know something I don't know and why don't I get on board yeah, and I'm not going to get on board. All right, I just want you guys to know this because you got jobs here too. You've got families too. I'm not getting on board. This is a scam. We're getting lied to. I can't figure out the fullness of the lie yet, but there's too many unanswered questions here. And that morning before I went in, I mean, the Lord woke me up and said to me, basically, you're on earth for this moment. That a 14-year-old girl had sex out of wedlock with her high school senior boyfriend and conceived you So that you would be where you are at for this moment. Everything. Everything in your career, the narratives you've always been willing to question, everything. It is, this is the moment to take all your chips, put them all in the table, put all the credibility, everything you've tried to build, go all in. Risk it all. And so that's what I did. And I I thought for sure our base would rebel against me because I'm now clearly at odds with their beloved president. The opposite happened. And our show grew by 600%. Hmm. And it's grown ever since, despite my better efforts at times.
0: No, that's fantastic. <laughs> and two points, actually. One, when you talk about the um, the Imperial College report never <laughs> never actually being able to do what it claimed to do, a lot of people don't realize the same thing about Darwin, mm-hmm. right? Darwin wrote a book called Origin of the Species, mm-hmm. but he actually admits in the book that he doesn't know the origin of the species. Right. He, he just says, after it was after. Life was created. We're just telling you what happens from then on, mm-hmm. right? The whole the whole thing has always been a hoax, right? Um, so there's a parallel there. The other thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I think this will broaden the discussion now, is that Trump, Gary and I have said that there are two things which are really damaging to Trump despite all the support that Trump has. And it's it's always bothered us about how supportive he was, not only of the lockdowns, but the vaccine mm-hmm. and Operation Warp Speed and how unrepentant he is and how he's doubled down. And every time someone questions him. Still to this day. Yeah, to this very day. Despite the facts. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so damaging, not only to his credibility uh, with, with us as people, but it's very, it's very concerning as to what would he do with power again? Agreed. I, um, I completely agree with that. And I think that, you know, um,
2: I, I think worldview is destiny. We cannot mm-hmm. outrun our worldview. Mm-hmm. You've heard character is destiny. Your character comes though from your worldview. All right. What you think about all day long and the way you think about it, you'll eventually become out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right. All right. And so if you look at if you look at President Trump, it's very clear, art of the deal, the famous book he wrote back right. in the day, it's not a shtick. It's very clear that's really his heart. That's that's what he is. That that's the that's his heart and soul from a worldview perspective. If you look at if if you, and when people said, "Well, we need someone who could, who has run a business to run the government." Well, number one, the government's not a business. Amen. Number one. Thank okay. you. Yeah.
1: We have that here in Tennessee. Yeah, but but, but number <laughs> two, much.
2: the 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 business that Trump ran wasn't a, a a transnational corporation with layers of of bureaucracy. He ran an empire. And and so I mean if if he wanted to you know like Joker crack the cue stick in half and say all right we're going to have tryouts he could do that. He could he could his thumb up and his thumb down whenever he wanted and make stuff happen. But the idea they had it work through regional VPs and managers and layers of bureaucracy to make stuff happen was that's not the way right. that the Trump empire works. And so you know a tree by its fruit. Look at his presidency. You saw this MO. And I'm a big believer guys that people always govern the way they campaign. Mm -hmm. The behavior of their campaign is always how they will govern. Okay. And so what did you see in Trump's campaign? It was hard for him to get good people to work for him. It was hard for him to retain good people once he hired them. But when he was on the stage and when he was in control, things went great. Okay. When it was a direct one-on-one between him and the camera, him and the media, him and the voters, He was a he trust me, I got my I got my teeth kicked in by Donald Trump every day on the cruise campaign Mm -hmm. for a year. If there's if I if there's a few things I know a lot about. Getting your rear end handed to you by Donald Trump's one of them. Okay. I mean, when 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 he was one on one with the camera, with the audience or the media, he was yeah. Undefeatable, okay, but but when when it was when the support structure had to come in, that's how we beat him in Iowa. Right. The organization that he had was just anemic compared to his to his. If he had our organization when the Cruz team,
0: mm-hmm.
2: he'd have won by twenty yeah. points, okay. Um, and so what happened in the White House? Again, same thing. When he can make unilateral decisions, I will move the embassy to Jerusalem, for example. Okay. Uh, I, will, I will protect religious freedom. When he can act like he could with his empire. And then when it's him one-on-one with the audience or with the, with, with world leaders, he was very effective. Right. When they when he had to work through the support structure that is required for the largest corporation in the world called the executive branch of the United States government, anything that anything that required anything other than his unilateral action, his presidency basically. Failed at, they could not get an agenda through Congress. He couldn't even bring other wings of his administration under wing. So I, I think back to when he went out and gave his first serious foreign policy speech in May of 2017 in Riyadh, I think it was Saudi Arabia, and I thought it was the best foreign policy speech an American president maybe has given since Reagan said, "Mr. Mm-hmm. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," right. and and it was very clear that he was going to he was charting a different course from the post Reagan era, from Reagan to Trump, Republican or Democrat that everything in the Middle East had to go through the Palestinian right. question. It was clear he was going to call BS on that and deal directly to the Arab leaders and say, you decide if you want peace with us or if you care about these Palestinians that you really kicked out of your country and don't want right. anyway, more than you want peace with us. And it was clear he was going to chart that, and I was all for that. But right after that, he comes back home. Rex Tellerson, who was a Secretary of State, just completely undermines the, mm-hmm. that message. Uh, starts, you know, working with Cutter, who's now one of the leading, you know, supporters of Wahhabism in the world. And that guy should have been fired the next day. He stuck around for months. And, and that was a constant problem. Yep. The support structure and personnel, just like when he was a candidate. Okay. Um, and then if he could unilaterally act, he was great but if it required him to massage anything or to build relationships with anything he was incapable of doing that and i and i think that's why covid wrecked his presidency because you have these trusted bureaucrats and they're trusted just because they've been there forever. Everybody on the COVID team, burks Fauci, mm-hmm. they were all brought in during yep. HIV. And they've, and they've yep, all been, been the national forever. health people since the 80s. Okay. And so they all come in and say, you're going to kill 2 million Americans unless you do what we say. You're Donald Trump. You don't want that on your conscience. All right. You have no ancillary network of people in, in power to challenge this. I've never blamed them for the first 15 days to flatten the curve. Okay. Nobody really knew what they were dealing with, and if anything, you could say at that point in time, it's like a you know we're in basketball season. The other team gets on a run, get it to baby, right. right? Just to slow the momentum. Fine. All right. Where he lost his presidency was that 30 days to slow the spread. Because now to continue this for an indefinite period of time, now you need, this, you need, the, you need the state chieftains all right, mm-hmm. to implement this and to run and to keep track of this infrastructure. And once that happened, they lost the plot. Yep. Now Andrew Cuomo's holding court every day. Okay? Right. Now Gavin Newsom's got the power. And you granted it to him. You delegated yep. it to him. And, and, and a lot of that, if you look at Trump's personal life, if, if I go bankrupt or if my business is failing, I file bankruptcies. I remember he used to brag. We, we tried to bring out his bankruptcies, his oppo research. Mm-hmm. He bragged about how many bankruptcies you know, from the debate stage. We're like, okay, well, that didn't work. All right. And <laughs> I mean, you look at divorces. All right. You know, my wife's a little older, got a little tread on the tires. I just trade her in for a newer model. Okay. And so there's a, there's, there, he was able to live a life where he could escape accountability and then he gets the one job on planet Earth where you cannot escape accountability. And so what happened? The first few years of his presidency, when he called BS on a lot of government corruption, he was wildly successful. Mm-hmm. When, but, but when a real crisis shows up now that is, cannot be art of the deal, real evil shows up. The civilization kind of ending mm-hmm. evil here. And and you're not going to barter with it. You're not going to of the deal it. You're not going to nuance it. You have to straight, and you're not going to avoid it. You can't, you know, you have to straight on confront it. His presidency crumbled. And the small group of us that pushed back on this from the beginning, we were desperate to get major medical professionals to come out and publicly push back. And one of the first that, one of the few, the first places that was willing to do it was at Stanford University top five medical school in the country. And there were several scientists there. Jay Bhattacharya Uh, is a name a lot of mm -hmm. your people are gonna know. Scott Atlas is a name a lot of people are gonna know. Uh, They actually did the first antibody widespread seroprevalence prevalence survey that we had imagine we, we imagine we 're shutting the country down we' don't even know who's been affected because Fox News is showing graphs that shows there's a two hundred percent increase in coronavirus you weren't testing for coronavirus mm-hmm. a month ago or two weeks ago right. so when your baseline is zero, zero and if two people get it that 's a two hundred percent increase from nuts right. okay yep. and so this this whole thing was a was a data catastrophe yep. and so Stanford steps out in, in April and does a seroprevalence study of Los Angeles County and finds that there's like 27 or whatever crazy number percent of the people in the, in, 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 or no, it was the county, Santa Clara County where Stanford is, 27% or some crazy number of the people had already had coronavirus, meaning it's been percolating around yep. here long before March 16th mm-hmm. to have that level of penetration, right? And so one of their guys named Scott Atlas begins writing public think pieces, but they're, they're like, you know, at the Hill that no one reads, mm-hmm. all right? I start putting them on my show. And putting them on regularly. And I convinced a few other people put them on their shows. We're, and, and let's see if there's, I, I won't name names, but some people I know that are very, were very tight with the Trump White House. I was able to get him on their radar. And then he finally gets, that's not enough, though. For you know, Trump, is in, as a president, when he was in the, in the White House, he would often just sit in the Oval Office all day long watching cable news. And, and deciding and looking Jeez. to see what they were saying about him and, and looking for talent. That's how a lot of times, if you got, if you were good on TV, that's what got Trump's attention. Mm. Okay, and so finally, we raise this guy's critical mass enough now that he's getting on Tucker Carlson and these okay. other shows that, that Trump actually pays attention to, and he's able to get he, he he gets a job in the White House in August of that year, and if you read Scott Atlas's book, it it'll just make you want to hurt people. All right, Trump never attended a single coronavirus task force mm-hmm. meeting never won, even if he had only attended the first one that Atlas was at. Imagine the president walks in and says, hey, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, all right? He's my eyes and ears. He reports back to me, all right? This has to stop. Now, I I want some sanity to be restored and he's my conduit to it, all right? So when he sits in this room, he's basically as if I am sitting Mm -hmm. in this room. Imagine if he had done that. Makes a big difference, or would have, He didn't, why? Because Jared Kushner wouldn't, Every, the White House, the, the Trump White House was captured by coronavirus right. internally as well. And so, in the end, that was the undoing of his presidency. His worldview, it frankly just isn't prepared for a, a, an existential clash of good and evil. It's just not the world that he lives in and it's not how he sees the world. He sees the world as people I can make a deal with and then people I can't. And, and evil you can't make a deal with you just have to defeat it.
1: And there's been several other things, but I think that that to me has created uh, pockets more well more division in the party. You know, I would say. Um, and I'm what I'm trying. What I would like to use that to explore a little bit. I'm trying to discern because we we talked about this a little bit last night. The state of the Republican Party, you know, as a whole. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to discern where Tennessee is. Um, for me personally, I don't. Honestly, your show is about what I get of national politics because Mm -hmm. in my day-to-day, I'm just not focused. I've said so many times from a stage, like, the federal government is not coming to save you. Mm -hmm. Every bit of liberty that we're going to be able to secure for our future and to our posterity is going to be through states' rights. It's Mm going to be through what we're able to accomplish here in our state legislature in Tennessee because, frankly, I'm not really concerned about what California is doing, what New York's doing. And so I sort of want to ask – I mean you were part – uh, for a, a very extended period of time, a long time now, there's a track record of pushing the Republican Party in your own state, back in Iowa, further to the right. Mm-hmm. And I and I I think you would agree that you're in a much better situation now in terms mm-hmm. of the Republican Party than you used to be. But here in Tennessee, a little bit of the differences. And Kevin, would you? We haven't been a Republican even majority in our state legislature for even 20 years yet.
0: Yeah. It was 2010 election when we got the majority.
1: Yeah, I, I actually was way off. I knew I was wrong when I answered that question uh, at dinner last night. Yeah. So it, it's been having a Republican majority in Tennessee is very new. Even two governors ago, mm-hmm. we had a, a Democrat, you know, as a governor, right? Is yeah. Right? Bredesen, Bredesen, Bredesen before Haslam. Before Haslam. Yep. So, you know, we, we went from zero to hero here in Tennessee, all the way up to now this massive supermajority who in my opinion doesn't rule by principle they rule very much by personality it's very top down mm-hmm. it's very hard for for grassroots to get movement you know in the legislature so how did you how did you get there in Iowa how would you compare that fight to what we're seeing nationally i'm i'm just trying to discern the situation we have here in our own state and what are you seeing nationally how do we at this point in time Beyond COVID, beyond all that we've seen, continue to push, hold the party accountable and push it towards the right. Because we're not, I know that's a national, the national view is that Tennessee is this bastion of conservatism. Mm-hmm. But when you, if if you're a guy on the it's ground, it's a bastion
2: of republicanism. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's the but that, truth. But people falsely a- equivalent the two terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me start national because I think it'll, Set the stage for why I'm going to give you the answer on a state basis that I'm going to give. One of the biggest reasons, other than his record, I mean, his record, in my view, what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Florida, Florida man was a national trend for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Hanging Chad became a term we all understood. I mean, he took uh, he took what for a generation was the most expensive swing state in the union. For fifty years, the average margin of victory in a Florida presidential election was two and a half points. Mm-hmm. You know, so when Trump won the state by four points in twenty twenty, that's like a landslide, deal, right? Okay, um, and this is a state that Obama won twice. He took a state. He took that state, and uh, where he walked in with a th- over three hundred thousand uh, deficit in voter registration, and now Republicans have an over eight hundred thousand. Uh, surplus in voter registrations in the state. And he moved it red by going hard right. Hmm. Like the kinds of stuff shows like what you want to do and what I want to do and that we have like pontificated theoretically. This is the stuff we could do. He
0: did actually it. did it.
2: He yep. actually went out and did it. And against his legislature's own will, because most of them are corporatist Rubio... I mean, Rubio is the conservative to them because he's a corporatist who's actually really pro-life, okay? These are mostly Rick Scotts, not culture warriors. Mm-hmm. And he forced them because he had the people behind him. He moved them to the right too. But it wasn't just his accomplishments why I backed him so vociferously in this race. It's because of the question you just asked me about the National Party. Say what you want about Ronald Reagan, and I think some of it is revisionist history to go back and critique him now. Uh, Young conservatives doing that through the lens of what we know now reminds me, it's kind of the same impulse to let's go down, let's go tear a a statue of Thomas Jefferson down uh, because he had sex maybe with Sally Hemings, his slave, and conceived a kid, and let's just forget everything else he did in his life. I've got a piece out today very critical of Alistair Beck, Mm -hmm. but if you read my piece from The Blaze, the opening of the piece says, Alistair Begg's been a tremendous instrument of God, yep. okay? I don't even know that I agree with these conferences that are canceling him now. If anything, I'd bring him in and actually try to come now, let us reason sure. together that's, about that's this. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's have some iron sharpen iron, yep. all right? So, I I mean, I wouldn't throw any Alistair Begg book away or anything like that at all, okay? But, you know, if Reagan Reagan's second term was not as strong as his first. We got an amnesty deal that lost California maybe right. forever. Um, yeah, the Iran Contra affair. Okay. But here's the thing that the Reagan, the, the 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 Ronald Reagan's main reason for getting elected was the economic malaise at home and to end the Cold War. He won those two big mm-hmm. wars. Now he did suffer some L's, but the, the two things that he was elected to do, he won both of those fights. And what he really did for about the next 30 years, eh, maybe 20 years, is he put people like us in a position of prominence. Within the organic Republican Party, mm-hmm. we had a we had a, we were we had agency because of him. All right, and and that agency outlived him for at least a decade or two. Okay, what I had hoped Trump would do is that. Okay, so that the the inevitable policy failures that will occur when you cannot you know bend the Hydra of Washington totally to your whim that the the kinds of people that would be put in place within the party mechanism after he is gone would be able to carry that mission forward the problem is Donald Trump is not an ideologically driven right. figure. He is a he is a loyalty <clears throat> or coalition driven figure, and so when he was pushed out of the White House by whatever you think of the last election, and I don't frankly buy the results, mm-hmm. um, what was left behind on the right is this like Frankenstein's monster, to uh, almost it's like a chimeric concoction like the coronavirus, where Elise Stefanik, who's the only member of the House leadership that voted to give the Rainbow Jihad everything that it wanted to make churches have to hire them, okay, nonprofits even, you know, she's in the same coalition with Charlie Kirk you know who is mm-hmm. doing, and I know Charlie pretty well. Who's like doing interviews with Jonathan Kahn, Like we're up against the the bales of old. Yep. How in the world? What in the world do Elise Stefanik and Charlie Kirk have in common? I'll tell you what it is: nothing, absolutely nothing, but one thing: a close attachment slash loyalty to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the problem with running a political party that way is, if you want to do what you guys are trying to do on a state level. And the, and the top of the food chain is not ideologically driven, even if it's ideologically driven more moderately and liberally, because that means the coalitions are determined ideologically. Those are the battle lines, all right? And that's the argument you want to have. But when the coalitions are determined relationally, mm-hmm. so it doesn't, so basically I can be as, uh, Mike Johnson can go out there yep. and, and, and betray us on every budget battle in the first month he's speaker, but if he paints the elephant's blood on the door and writes Trump, the 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 spirit of accountability will pass over his office at the Rayburn Building, <laughs> and and he's good to go because he said I endorse Trump. What image? That which is ha- which is happening? But that's what's right happening. Yep. These yeah. these people that they say they support Trump, they can then say they can do whatever they want to us. And if you're Thomas Massey, who's the lone voice crying out in the wilderness during the CARES Act and say, no, I'm not we're not going to do this uh, voice vote. You guys are going to actually go on the record and vote on this terrible piece of legislation. If you're Chip Roy saying, what is the point of keeping government open as long as the border is open and we're not a country? But if they won't if they won't fet Trump, then they're rhinos. All right. So this is going to make what you want to do on a state level much more difficult. Because if a guy like DeSantis is in charge of the, of the party, he's driven by ideology. And so that means all the fights that are going to flow from that are all going to be ideologically driven. And, and we get to have them. That's right. If a guy who's coalition-based, like Trump, is in charge, then everything's going to be determined by which coalition are you in. So Elise Stefanik is a proud conservative warrior. Thomas Massey is a rhino. Okay. That's the world that we now live in. That's going to make what you guys want to do on a state level, very difficult. When I entered into where we, to where Iowa was in its history, honestly, not looking back on it, man, it was just providential timing because Iowa has never really been a red state. It's been a purple state for many years. It sent Tom Harkin and Charles Grassley to the Senate for, you know, my, most of my lifetime. And we when i when i got on the air on who democrats had just through after the 2006 election cycle had had their greatest control of iowa since reconstruction they had 60 i think it was 61 seats in the state legislature out of 100 and they had uh republicans only had 17 of 50 seats in the state legislature so i mean they they've got super majorities and now they're and then and they've got the governor as well National right to work was so concerned that Iowa would become the first state to pass and then repeal right to work. And then that, and then, Iowa would do that right into a caucus cycle where both parties were going to have uh, open nomination fights in 2008 and that this would start a nationwide trend of right-to-work losing across the country. They basically moved their entire national organization to Iowa the first two years I was on the air. They, they trained me in grassroots activism. Mm. They, they trained me in aggressive confrontational posture and tactics. Right-to-work taught me— that the way the left has took over the Democratic Party is that they didn't practice politics based on access. Seat at the table. That's what we do on the right. Hmm. All right. I need a speaker for my event, so I don't want to betray this person. You know, we're all, we're all part of the same coalition here. I'm, yep. you know, we're, I don't want to bring a bill to the floor unless everybody's yep. for it. It's, right? the bi- it's the okay? big tent. Steve. Yes. The left did this based on leverage. And by understanding that politics was about leverage, the left created an environment where if a Mary Landrew could somehow get elected senator statewide in Louisiana, mm-hmm. it didn't matter. When she got to Washington, she was going to vote the same way Diane Feinstein was going to vote. Because if she didn't, they were taking mm-hmm. her out. Okay, And they understood that it was about leverage. Our whole model on the right, and this is why we're always open to grifters. The Christian conservative movement got overrun by grifters. The Tea Party got overrun by grifters. MAGA getting overrun by grifters. Every time we try to reboot into some new version of right-wing populism, it lasts for a while. And then it gets overrun by grifters. Part of that is because we're not subsidized by a handful of billionaires like they are. There's not a handful of billionaires coming up to the Mark Levins and Steve Daces and Glenn Beck's and Dan Bongino's and Charlie Kirk's and saying, hey, you know what? I want you to do hard-write <clears throat> material and I don't care how many ads we sell, I'll keep writing <laughs> right. a check, all right? They got, a, they got a fleet of them on the other yep. side that do that, all right? And so we have to be for-profit by nature. We, we can't survive without it. But when you are for-profit at some point, you're gonna lose your prophetic voice because it's not profitable always to be prophetic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, how have long to gather you and as a hen gathers in her checks, you who stone the prophets and kill those whom God has sent. That's what our Lord said about the eternal city. Okay. Right. And, when, and when he went there to visit, you know, I mean, this is what they do uh, to prophetic voices. And we, we always do that to prophetic voices. And so when I came in in Iowa, the masses were tired of losing. I had a national organization on the ground and right to work cultivating and planting seeds that we've got to get more aggressive here. Iowa conservatives had had enough of the Republican Party. They had had enough. I didn't have to convince people to get mad at the Republican Party. I had to just direct that anger into constructive places. Now, the business and corporate interests, they try to get rid of me from day one. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a guy who is who he ended up getting promoted to our board of regents by our governor, former governor, Rhino governor for life, Terry Branstad, Um, a gay Republican named Bruce Rastetter. And he basically came in with his money and bought a bunch of the Republican legislature and stuff off right at the time. I'm trying to use this 50,000 watt blowtorch to get these people to move right. Okay, and Rastetter was part of the renewable fuels cartel. I know, I know from outside of Iowa, you guys all think that the ethanol people are all just like a bunch of money grubbers, but there's really two ethanol, renewable fuel movements in Iowa. There's the average family farmer that just is looking for a way to profit off of what I can do with the corn I, I, mm-hmm. that no one else will buy, all right? And then there's the cartel people that you guys see. Well, what, one of the things about the renewable fuel standard people don't understand, because they just look at the subsidy side of it that says you have to put it in, you know, in, into the, you know, in the gas stations, What mm-hmm. you don't look is at the other side they also put a cap on the ethanol you can produce. And the cartel wants this because if there's a cap on the amount of ethanol they can produce, they always remain the cartel. They don't ever have to compete in a free market against, you know, an an entrepreneurial family farm says, Hey, we can make this better and faster. We can convert this into ethanol better and faster than you can. And just put us on an open market and let's see who can make it better, faster and cheaper. They don't want that. They want to remain in control. All right. That's the part of the renewable fuel standard that, that doesn't ever get talked about. Like I know, you know, we were all on the cruise campaign. Mm-hmm. How did one of the guys that Cruz got the support of was Dave Vandergreen, who's a good friend of mine. And Dave has is one of the biggest ethanol barons in the country. Okay. He's based out of Wichita, Kansas, I believe, but he's got a lot of, he owns plants and stuff in Iowa. He's a big believer in overturning the renewable fuelable standard. In fact, I've, I've consulted, I've worked on presentations mm-hmm. with Dave where he's presented why they should do this because he actually believes it's a good product, but it would lessen the control of the cartel. And when he thinks they could compete in an open market, right. the cartel doesn't want that because they want to remain in control. Right. Well, we had on WHO Radio this farm show that billed about $900,000 in a, year, a year, and it had been a part of HO for decades, and all the big ones, Monsanto, Pioneer Hybrid, all of them advertised in this show. Well, now that this guy Rastetter's kind of running the cartel, he's the big honcho buying the ads in the show. And he got so frustrated with me at one point, he called my general manager and said, I will pull all the money out of that farm show tomorrow, all nine hundred grand, if you guys don't fire Steve Dace. Hmm. And this is in his last show. And they would have done it, except my show was billing about $2 million a year. So they kept me and Mm -hmm. and said no to him. All right. But I was able to survive. You can't have, you got to have one or the other. If you're not going to have the business interest, then you got to have the people. Mm -hmm. And if you have the people on your side, I'll take votes over dollars every single time. Because we still do have to have these things called elections. There is still a moment where the people get to have their say. And if you have weapons at your disposal where you can mobilize people, we had one where I had access to a 50,000-watt blowtorch where I could create a mass coalition of people, okay? Um, What my buddy Bob Vanderplotz did, he came in after I was in for a few years of doing this and after his last gubernatorial run he took the huckabee presidential organization that was built basically and 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 used a lot of those contacts to create a group called the family leader and so now i'm the air force he's on the ground he's the army okay he can actually take the the activists that i'm reaching all right and then channel them and mobilize Mm -hmm. them into a force uh, that, you know, to go to conventions and things of that nature and be a part of the local infrastructure. So the timing for us to do this worked out very well. I didn't have to convince the people things are not as good as you think. They knew things were bad. The right in Iowa was desperate to get aggressive and to win. The disadvantage you have is things are really good here. And so people think because of that on the surface, mm-hmm. it's just not human nature to look beyond your current circumstances right. and anticipate. Yeah. You well, know, and, and, what, and nobody ever come.
1: and nobody ever does anything bad in Tennessee. Just a bunch <laughs> of good people looking out for your best interests. what <clears throat> so we have here in Tennessee. And but one
2: of one of the things though, and I'll share this example that I shared with you last night. You do have to make examples out of people, you know. And I have to be careful because I enjoy doing it more than I should. <laughs> okay, but but there is a reason that you know. Remember the happy days back in the day? Oh, yeah. When Fonzie when went to step into the men's room. Now, you wouldn't do that on a show nowadays because I have different context, <laughs> okay? Um, but when Fonzie meant it, it meant, would you like to come get wrecked, all right? And, and because in the pilot episode, he took a guy into the men's room and showed him what that meant. For all the rest of the episodes of happy days, anytime he said, would you like to step into the men's room? Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. We're good here, all right? The example had been set, all right? And so I'll, I'll, I, I, there were times I had to set examples with people, don't mess with us. And I'll share one of them with you. I mm-hmm. shared it with you last night. So there was a woman named Stacey Apple who the Democrats were were cultivating her to take over for Tom Harkin, mm-hmm. be the next Democrat senator for life and wreck us in the Senate for another 30 years. And her husband was one of the judges in the state of Iowa that thought he could redefine marriage. And And we had that big effort. where We threw the judges out, but he wasn't one of the judges. He wasn't up that year. OK, so this was clearly being set up to be the next Democrat power couple in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she's got to win her state Senate reelection first though before they can run her for a US Senate. So I I helped recruit the most conservative member of the Iowa House to run against her in a state Senate seat. All right. And since I had no interest in promoting Terry Branstad, beat my buddy Bob in the gubernatorial primary and I'll, I'll vote for the rhino man over the other. But I'm not I, I'm I'm not going to lie to my audience. This guy's some great person. He's mm-hmm. just not a communist. That's the only good thing I can say about him. So, I, I mean, I was looking for things to talk about on the air because right. it wasn't going to be the governor race every day. So this gave me something to talk about mm-hmm. every day, too. All right. So there's something in it for me as well. So we've got this campaign set up. We have a good pollster come in. We've got we've got the money we've got a decent shot to win this race. All right. I take the family to Disney world late September when the kids were little for the first time. All right. I'm out of pocket for a week. I come back. Literally all hell is broken loose while I was gone. All right. People are crying, like literally crying. My candidate has stopped campaigning. Okay. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Well, my candidate, uh, him and his wife, they got pregnant in high school and got married very young. Okay. Okay. Before they became the Christian homeschool family that owns this, the the successful mm-hmm. office cleaning business in mm-hmm. rural Iowa that they are now, okay, they had too many bonfire parties at the out there in rural Iowa, got too drunk and 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 got none, none of that happens in a place like Tennessee, right? Okay, <laughs> so one night, you know,
0: wait, I think it was Bonaroo, right? And our Secretary of State, <laughs> man, that is exactly what came into my mind. <laughs> all right,
2: so one mm-hmm. night when they're very young, first to be married, all right everybody's too drunk. They get into a fight. She calls the cops on him because she's ticked off. All right. And says that he's, he, he threatened me. He smacked me. That didn't happen. Cops, of course, as they should, you know, when everybody's drunk and you're not sure, let's just take the husband away, throw him in the clink overnight, sober up and let's see mm-hmm. what everybody's stories are in the morning. Right. All right. She comes and bails him out the next morning. I was drunk. He was drunk. We just got in a fight. It was dumb. We're kids. We're stupid. We're sorry. All right. Nobody was ever charged. So this should never be on anybody's record, all right? All over the airwaves in his district and in our in central Iowa is is the Democrats through a super PAC are running these ads talking about this guy's a wife beater. His other kids who were born after they don't know about any of this. Mm-hmm. They're, they're getting now they're getting bullied at school. They're coming home crying from school. What went on? You know, is this not my parents weren't what I thought they were? Okay, this family's like getting destroyed and decimated by this. And so clearly, in, in Iowa, that's not how we campaign. You're just, that's outside the rules right. of engagement. And every community has its own rules of engagement. This was, so this required a punishment outside the rules of engagement, in my view. Mm-hmm. So we did a little research, and we found out that the PAC that the Democrats had used to purchase these ads, the biggest donor to this PAC was MidAmerican Energy, our utility company in the state. Okay. So do we find out who's on the board, who's the CEO of MidAmerican Energy? Find out who that guy is, get his home address. Cool. So what we did is is we drew up flyers and with his picture on it and said, Hey, did you know your neighbor supports slandering and libeling public officials with this kind of information and and making their kids cry and making their kids get bullied at school by spreading this kind of stuff that was private, not even most of it's not even true, what's even in these ads. Did you know your neighbor's doing this kind of stuff? And all we did was lit dropped his cul de sac. Mm-hmm. That's all we did. Because that's all. Because you're going to get up in the morning, you're just going to look around and see these flyers in everybody's cars, right. and you're going to think the whole neighborhood looks like this. But all we did was his cul-de-sac. <laughs> the reaction was, he, I mean, people in his in cul- they, the, the reaction was not, he pulled his money, pulled his funding, mm. and those ads went away. And we ended up winning that race Great. on election night. So you have to be, you have to at times make examples. Mm-hmm. You have to let people know, you're not going to get away with doing that to me. Uh, We're not going to, we're not going to, we didn't say anything untrue. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't slander him. Right. We didn't call him any names. We, we didn't bear false witness. We didn't violate any commandments whatsoever. We just thought maybe, maybe his neighbors ought to know what it is. And maybe he ought to know. Right. what it is he's been funding because he probably doesn't know that they're probably just putting out all this money and everything else, but we needed to make it. And I don't think mid American energy is given to a political pack since, from mm. what I can think of. All right. But there, but so you do need to make examples out of that, out of, out of people. But um, in your situation, what I would be looking at, what are the pressure points where people can see, all right, a weakness was exposed here that if we don't deal with it now, it'll get exposed later. COVID would be one of them, the, right. all that other stuff. And 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 I think there's an, the other tactic you can take with people when you don't have to be confrontational. You know, like I'm trying to do that with our governor right now, Kim Reynolds, who I adore, okay? And she's the, Kim Reynolds is the only politician I was convinced would sell us out that I've ever been wrong about, okay? And you can thank the Lord and the work he's done in her life for that, Amen. okay? Um, but I'm trying, you know, to convince her now, hey, the fact that we're trying to get the legislature to put all these measures in place that nothing like COVID could be ever done in Iowa because she's like, hey, I did the right thing. Why are you guys doing, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be governor for life, right? okay? Mm. And, and so I call it the Pharaoh who knows not Joseph rule, you know, yep. and maybe that's what I would be doing in a state like yours, you know, it's not, we're not trying to upset Republican camaraderie here. We're not saying everybody's a rhino. You probably are. Okay, we're not saying that. What we're saying is, you know, like, hey, in 2010, we just got control mm-hmm. of this thing, all right? Here in, in in states where a Democrat presidential candidate since Bill Clinton wouldn't even think about winning, we didn't get control of the state apparatus until a decade ago. Mm-hmm. This idea that we're just gonna be perpetually in charge with these numbers is not accurate. So what's the wish list of things right now that we could put in place right now So that the time arises when a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph is in control of the legislature. All right. When the, when the other people who forgot that I interpreted their Mm -hmm. dreams and what I could do. And so they put me back into prison. Okay. What, what, what are those, you know, what, what, what are those things that we could do so that we are, we we have insurance. All right. And that, and you can almost maybe message it as an insurance policy rather than accountability perhaps would be a suggestion.
1: And one of the clearest examples we have here in Tennessee of where we're unwilling to do that is three years in now, three and a half years in almost, this legislature has still been unwilling to do the job of limiting um, our governor's authority in an emergency because this party refuses to do anything that in any way smacks of repudiating Governor Bill Lee. Why? Because we don't want to say anything bad about our fellow Republicans mm-hmm. and we, we definitely don't want to, you know, put a, any kind of stain on on the leader. but. The short-sightedness of that is, yeah, but should any should any gov not just Bill Lee mm-hmm. should any governor have that kind of power here in Tennessee to rule by executive fiat? Well, no. But they're they are simply they don't they don't view life that way. So they're just they've been unwilling to do it. And every time we push that bill on the legislature for the last three years, it dies a horrible death. It never makes it out of committee because the party is unwilling in any way, shape, or form to do anything that might show that they that they've had to hold themselves accountable. So it's really hard to get any of those things done. Do you you have I what kind of local media?
2: You know, who's the who's the you know the local guy on all the big talk stations that comes on the air they, uh, after the national shows and things of that nature. That you could coalesce around those guys, get to know those people, and uh, because they can help provide. The, that's that's a lot of what I did. But was that's provide but that's, that.
1: the, but that's the problem here. All of those guys here in Tennessee are owned, lock, stock, and barrel by the establishment, mm-hmm. and we don't have truth tailors. We have folks that are desperate um, to grow their own influence, mm-hmm. and they'll never. Put their ability to have that influence on the altar, because I, actually I'm, I'm using the word influence, but I meant to say it's access. Yep. I mean they they want that access, yep. and so you know uh, there's there's a few grassroots organizations like us that have you know um, a certain amount of following here amongst the grassroots, but we don't have fifty thousand watt mm-hmm. you know whatever radio stations, uh, and then we have the Tennessee Conservative News run by Brandon Lewis, who's a, yep. a really good friend of mine. Um, but between the two of us. Quite honestly, that is the grassroots voice essentially, and so we just we don't have the the radio stations and the news organizations uh, to go. It's it's a that's what makes it difficult is to really get that message out. We we don't have a Steve Dace on the radio. Um, we sort of have one in Memphis, maybe oh, yeah. a little bit. Uh, Todd Starnes yeah. is is a, a great friend, and he's probably one of the only guys that has a radio station he's way out in west tennessee that's yeah i know todd w- yeah that that's Used willing to fox news for me yeah. Yeah, yeah but he's here he's he's one of the only guys actually willing to call a spade a spade mm-hmm. uh in fact the governor i think is pretty fearful of going oh, yeah. on that show nowadays yep. yeah in, in fact it was right after he
0: got elected he went on todd starns and thought he was going to get like his back rub he did and not starns asked him some mm-hmm. very very direct questions this but this goes to again
2: this is a problem that would have been aided by and assisted if a more forget the names. It doesn't matter if the names are DeSantis and Trump it doesn't matter. If it's ketchup and mustard. Okay. The, the name on the back of the Jersey is irrelevant. All right. If the standard bearer of the party was more ideologically driven, it would compel mm-hmm. it would compel these conversations because that's the water table at the top and that's the that's the reservoir that's the mouth of the river and it's going to flow down to the rest of these tributaries i mean it, that's what you saw in the post reagan era in the party yet all these ideological fights between the christian conservatives and the establishment and the grassroots and the establishment because that was the culture of the party that was promulgated by the figurehead, Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. because he was an ideologically driven uh, uh, standard bearer. And, and so it would be inevitable to have these debates on some level because that's, the, that's in the ecosystem of the party. What you have right now is an ecosystem of a party that is almost entirely coalition driven instead. Yep. That's,
1: that's, yeah. that's, re- I mean, that's 100% true. That's the challenge.
0: Oh, boy. Look at our time, Gary. We it's could okay. probably sit here for another hour and a half. My answers easier. are too long. It's, it's <laughs> no, my fault. answers are awesome. It's great. I'm just, I'm only hesitant to open up a new subject because it might take us another 30 minutes of...
1: Let's go one more, Kevin. What's, what's burning on your heart? Well, one I more. want
0: to talk about the border. Okay. Because both you and Daniel Horowitz wrote great pieces on um, not only the constitutionality, but the moral duty mm-hmm. of the Texas governor who... Finally, is doing the right thing. You know, was Abbott just was using words for a couple of years, even mm-hmm. though our friend at Center for Newing America, Russ Vote, had given him, and Ken Cuccinelli wrote the original piece, giving them the constitutional authority and encouraging them to use it. Now they are. But what do you think ultimately? Let's say for this year. Let's limit it to this year. What do you think is going to happen? I'm very encouraged, of course, by the fact, and and I think most conservatives are and Christians. That, at least, we got the support of these other governors jumping on a letter. I agree. Right? At this point, some yeah. of it's just letter, right? DeSantis is sending troops, and, yeah. and that helps. But what do you think—how do you think this is going to affect, and what what effect will this border invasion, which it has been, it always has been, it's intentional, is going to have on the election? Because this is an election year, and mm-hmm. that's obviously very intentional and deliberate by the left. Where do you see this going?
2: I am setting it let, let, for for a moment let's set aside the moral aspect of this issue and even the let's con- th- th- because I'm going to assume the three of us and everyone that's going to listen to this likely understands the moral implications mm-hmm. of this okay and <clears throat> and understands, as I've been, you know, tweeting every morning for the last month now, if this isn't a replacement, then exactly what Absolutely. is it? I mean, give me tell me what the other alternative explanation then is. Okay. So let's set that aside. And now, if you guys don't mind, let's approach this strictly from a political science and analytically, this circumstance. From an analytical standpoint, I am fascinated by this story greatly. And the reason why is because everybody is boxing themselves in. The notion of the uniparty—that that a, sl- a slogan that's become very popular <laughs> yeah. and rightfully so—in yep. the, in the last few cycles, you know, <clears throat> this idea or a ruling class, as Angela Cote Villa coined it a decade ago, um, this these this permanent class of people who view themselves as basically the people that uh, remain in place, so the so the crazies on each side don't get in the way of this thing—the uh, business mm-hmm. of America—and they keep the trains running on time. Yep. All right, what's happened here is. That class of people created this situation at the border in that you had differing self-interest, but they were mutual in the same outcome. Democrats are clearly engaged in a form of of, of cultural uh, reapportionment, mm-hmm. um, electoral displacement. OK, I mean, if you just do the math, I think if 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 Democrats were to turn Texas blue and Trump only won the state by six or seven points right. in 2020, if Democrats were to turn that state blue between California, Texas and New York, that's something like 61 percent of the electoral college mm-hmm. votes you need to win. What a Republican would have to do to win a national election is just basically the equivalent of going to Vegas on your last paycheck with your mortgage note and saying, all right, I'm going to put it all on black. That's what, you know, this one time. And Mm -hmm. if it works, we pay off the house. If not, we foreclose. I mean, that's (laughs) essentially it's not zero, but it ain't good are your odds. Right. So um, and then you had this corporatist class of the Republican Party that was looking for labor replacement, some of it driven by demographics. We've aborted too many people. Um, The idea that you're going to kill 60 million of your progeny and not face any real world impact is crazy, you know. But then even if we didn't have a demographic issue, the idea of driving down wages of the labor force would be particularly appealing to them in any demographic environment. And so these two entities permitted this to occur out of mutual self-interest. All right. But, you know, this is where the laws of sowing and reaping are undefeated. You know, there, there is no more. I, I think there's almost no more hope in our current cultural condition for some form of systemic justice and accountability. Mm. There's exceptions, you know, but most of the time it's just not going to happen. You're, you're you're in the time of the judges. Thankfully, we still have the laws of nature and nature's god. Yep. And they're eternal and they're often self-enforcing. And so even if we weren't able to do it politically on either side, even if institutionally no one would step in. I, You know, Jan Brewer was not a great governor of Arizona, but even she recognized what was going on in her mm-hmm. state. Although She was a rhino, basically, and everything else. But on this one issue, she was a hawk because mm-hmm. she was facing the real-world implications yeah. of this. She tried to fight this a decade ago, and the Roberts court slapped her down right. and said, you have no jurisdiction, all right, <clears throat> which set the stage for what's happening in Texas right now. Eventually, the laws of sowing and reaping come into play. And they're coming into play right now. So this thing has now become untenable because Robert Bork was wrong. We don't slouch to Gamora, we sprint. The idea that they were going to just slightly open Pandora's box to let just enough migrants in to keep wages at a, at a, at a sustainable mm-hmm. level for corporate America and just enough migrants in that <clears throat> Democrats are able to, you know, next time Beto or work can gets the two and a half <laughs> points he needs to beat Ted Cruz. Yeah. And they were going to manage this thing perfectly and, and, and angels on the head of a needle and, yep. and, and get the camel camel through the eye of a needle. That's not how human nature works. That's not how any of this works. It was just, a, it was always going to end this way. It was just a matter of time, how long it took and how much damage was, done in the process and so now we're at a point that each side's mutual self-interest are more than satiated but no one now knows how to turn off the spigot and now they can't They, they they can't do it in a normal way because this became so brazen that the drug cartels are now openly Mm -hmm. in control of the American border. Now, we're not talking just, you know, running drug mules, like openly in control of the border. I think about one of the times Chip Roy went down to the border a couple of years ago. He's doing a stand-up TV interview and a young migrant Hispanic girl gets human trafficked right behind him while he's live on the air. All right? Look at at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm -hmm. He goes down and figures, he thinks, I'm the classical liberal. I will find some nuanced ways to satisfy everybody yeah, on this position. Yes, yeah. he goes down there and he's just like, oh my freaking word, what the hell is going on mm-hmm. here? Okay, people from Afghanistan, from Yemen, what what in the world? And how, now he's like, shut it all down, yep. okay? You know, and so it's gone beyond now where the managerial classes of both parties are willing to have an acceptable level of loss for the overall uniparty goal. It's broken through. And now, what will be fascinating to see Because they're now all being pushed. You mentioned the Republican governors. Mm -hmm. Even some Republican governors who have been weak on immigration in their own states. What's happening, I think, is—and I used this analogy on my show the other day. In the old original six days of hockey, you know, uh, what would happen is the reason you'd get these massive line brawls is because the only person that got fined for fighting would be the second guy Mm -hmm. in. And so if the old Detroit Red Wings were pissed off at the old Montreal Canadiens, here's what would happen. All right? A fight would start on the ice. One of the teams would take their backup goalie, who never plays anyway, all right, throw him over the board. Yep. So he was the second guy in. Yep. So they don't have to worry about him getting ejected. Then they were all going to split his fine, mm-hmm. okay, to pay it for him. And then they would all jump over the boards, and the fight was on, okay? That's what's happening here. A bunch of other governors are like, Greg Abbott's in a position now where he has to move. He has mm-hmm. no choice, has no choice now. So you're the guinea pig. What's happening there. This is Tonto. What do you mean? We Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. It looks like they're backing him. And some of them are like you mentioned DeSantis DeSantis. is actually sending him support. The guys that are just putting out and, and, and 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 the men and women are just putting their name on a letterhead. This is basically them saying to Greg Abbott, you got him Lone Ranger. You're right. You're the man for the job. And, and that but that adds extra pressure on Greg. Greg declared an invasion over a year ago and did nothing. Right, nothing. And so this has broken through. So now he's got to take the next course of action. The problem is the next course of action it will, will has to provoke a response from the Democrats. All right. Has to provoke yep. a response from the Biden White House. You can see the Democrats are pressuring Biden. Nationalize right, the Texas right. Guard. All right. The problem is we have the Texas Rangers. We have a, we have a state guard. OK. Mm-hmm. We can just we have sheriffs. We can just deputize locals if we want yep. to see the cat now. Pant. This is out now. I don't think anybody knows where this is going to go because this has blown up beyond yep. the, each side's scope of what they can actually control. And both sides are now being pressured by elements in their own parties of taking this to extremes. Where are we? I, I would not be shocked if at some point this year you woke up and there was an actual standoff. All right. I'm talking like weapons pointed at each other between the nation, the, the, a nationalized guard yep. and some Texas agency over this particular. And we're only talking about, guys, a few square miles of the, of the let, overall issue. But let's okay. do it, though. Let's have. I, I think we're heading the there. Standoff. I think we're heading there. And I, I think what, 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 what will be tried before we get there is some form of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of now trying to get the Supreme Court to issue a formal order. All right. To then see if Texas stands down now with a formal
0: order. But, as, problem, you, but the, as you and Daniel pointed out so well, the court doesn't have the power to enforce it. Enforce the court it. can make a judgment. That's exactly right. No and will, s- no s- force.
2: And so what's funny is, even though they didn't issue an order, because the Democrats jumped to the talking point right away mm-hmm. that he's defying the Supreme Court, it gave a lot of people like Daniel and I and the, on the right to come in and say, They have no ability to enforce the order. Now, when some of the people that are judicial supremacists on the right, like this Ed Whalen at Dash and Review and others who are with the Fed Sox Society, okay, because that's their grift. When they saw what we were doing, they came in and said, well, there was no order. We've not done anything because they want to maintain their grift, Mm -hmm. okay? Too late. Everybody knows now. All right. It's out in the open now. There's no sergeant of arms, no marshal of the Supreme (laughs) Court coming to enforce their edict. All right. And so but that's my guess of what will be tried next is to avoid getting to the standoff situation that you're talking about. Well, let's see if this is a game of chicken. And as my assistant Todd likes to say, quoting from uh, Hunt for Red October, the hardest part of chicken is is known when to flinch. Mm-hmm. All right? So both these sides are now out there out there, you know, on the side on, on the on the straits between Alaska and the Soviet Union and they're in their in their submarines right. under the ice, all right? Waiting to is this is this guy is he going to fire on us? Is he going to defect to us? What is it? That's what's happening. And I and and this is one of the few truly completely unscripted organic political controversies between the two parties where there is not a pro wrestling aspect of this where pro wrestling is real people say it's fake no these, these guys are really they get hurt they risk injury the outcomes are scripted. Right. That's a, a guy is a three hundred pound man is really coming off a top turnbuckle and putting his elbow into your rib cage. Now he's going to try to strategically do it in a way he doesn't break your ribs, but he doesn't always land perfectly, and sometimes he does. That's for real, okay? But the outcome of who's going to win is scripted. Right. That's much of much of the political fights we have are real, but scripted, like pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. This one, everybody's lost the plot, and so I am just from an mm. analytical standpoint, this thing is organic, it's combustible. I don't think anybody knows where it's going to go because now both sides are boxed into positions they have spent years trying to avoid having to take, and now they have no choice
1: but to take them. It will be fascinating to see where this goes over the next several months for sure. And meanwhile, here in Tennessee, literally three days ago, the news breaks, there's a letter that was drafted from DCH that states that 600 illegal aliens are making their way to middle Tennessee it actually specified there's 200 from Venezuela 200 from Guatemala and 100 from Mexico they've been released out of detainment or whatever these centers are down there and and they've notified DHS that their place of preference they're coming to Tennessee and that that's literally three days ago right here in middle Tennessee and in the midst of that there is a bill running through our legislature right now that if passed would restrict the housing of any illegal immigrant to be housed in a in property owned by the state any state agency or any political subdivision of the Mm -hmm. state that bill now gets moved to the final calendar they're they're gonna kill it they don't even want to deal with it right now while 600 immigrants per dcs uh dhs are coming here now
0: and i think that was if the top of that letter indicated that was a week in september so i think that was just one week in September. Oh, and in we're, Middle Tennessee. And we're just finding we had out. 600, now. Yeah, and we're finding out now.
2: What's fascinating also about this is Trump is your presumptive GOP nominee. And in the winter and spring of twenty fifteen, I mean he's trying to hire me to work for his campaign. And and his campaign was early on a joke until the spring of twenty fifteen when he when he glommed onto the immigration right. issue. And he became the immigration hawk in the mm-hmm. race. And this issue took him from novelty to force of nature mm-hmm. politically. Who has been largely silent during all
0: of this? Da-da-da-da-da. The, the yeah. likely
2: Republican nominee. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever an issue for him to exploit, and that's another concern I have, which brings us full circle. If you've watched the way he has performed and behaved this primary, this version of Donald Trump, we would have defeated in 2016. He doesn't want to take positions on issues. Mm -hmm. It's a very his talking points are very Romney, McCain, Bush. He's
0: completely gone with the left on right to life now, too.
2: It's clear he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be on the hook for making any ideological statements at all in the primary mm-hmm. so that he is free to say whatever he wants in the general like he gave a speech yesterday saying well we got to give even more money to ukraine okay when i you know i mean that that's his like you know his base is driving issues so he's not taking he's not even exploiting this issue for his own political gain he's largely out of any of these ideological fights he which wants I,
1: he wants to build a new facility for the fbi yes and vivek ramaswamy is uh, like well i you know, that he's asked if he would right. consider being a VP. And he's like, well, you know, honestly, uh, he'd have to correct that issue because yeah. I'm not looking to build buildings for the FBI. There's so many things like that that are being said that, uh, again, this whole conversation we're talking about, this personality, the personality-driven nature of the party versus mm-hmm. our ability to have principled arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, Where was Greg Abbott, by the way, the day that he released that statement that
2: we we're going to defy the court, all right, and do what we think is right? And every we all read that. That is a tremendous statement, man. Yeah. I mean, that's Declaration of Independence kind of stuff. Do you guys know where he was at when that statement was released? No. Are you guys ready for this? Well, he was in Davos. Greg Abbott yeah. was in India.
0: Uh, oh, that's right. He I was in India, India
2: to recruit people for more H-1B, oh. or whatever, a, a worker, uh, high-skilled worker visas. So he was in India recruiting people to come and take American jobs while he was cow. putting out that statement, but you then he was in Davos too, right? No, like days Brian later. Kemp, Brian, did he? I know Brian Kemp went to Davos okay. last year, but um, you can't make that's the republic. But
0: see, that's. Do you think that was strategic so he could say to the establishment, no. hey, I'm not, or that was just an accident? An I, ironic. I think the Supreme accident. Court. I think the Supreme Court ruled. The right
2: stood up almost in unison and said. Hell no, we're not doing this. And he boxed him in. That's what's so fascinating about this. <laughs> These guys are all getting. Joe Biden doesn't want to nationalize the Texas Guard. Right. All right. Believe me, if 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 they thought they could just run tanks over Americans that own three hundred million guns, guys, they'd have done it. Done
0: it a long time. The, the time same ago. Yep. people
2: that took that told your kids they can't go back to school, wear a mask forever. You have to take a jab to work. Okay. If they thought they could just own you with your three hundred million guns, those same people, they thought they could act on an instinct, they would. He doesn't want to nationalize the Texas Guard. He doesn't want to have to do that. The, both sides of this right now are like, "Don't let me at him! Don't let me at him!" It's, it, but, but the reality, <laughs> yes, but the reality is now that this situation has become so untenable. It's so, it's so unavoidable. You've got left-wing actors, you know, putting out videos on Twitter. Losing it, losing it over it. This thing is, they've all lost the plot on this, and that's why it's going to be fascinating to see throughout the rest of this year as now we add in the tensions of politics. That's the one thing with Donald Trump. This is where, because he has no real core principle ideology, the lament that we're having today, we're taping this, what, February 3rd? The lament Mm -hmm. we're having today that he's just totally absent from this fight? If like on September 3rd, in the heat of the general election, you woke up one day and Donald Trump made the entire race, a referendum on this issue, would you be shocked to hear that? No. <laughs> no. no. So dude, Trump's like the weather. You may not like it now, hang out long enough, it may swing. A month ago in Iowa, we had the worst winner of all time. When I left you guys to come here, it was 60 degrees. We were in the best winner of all time. Yeah. <laughs> so six months from now, Donald Trump might be, this is, thank God he's in this fight with us again. You know, that's the thing, you never know. This process is way out of, they've, they're they've lost control of it yeah. the normal the normal channels of normalcy and managerial sustainability on both sides they're not running mm. this
0: issue anymore i don't think anybody knows where to go now well congratulations steve <clears throat> you are now officially our longest right longest well, it's incre- freedom matters podcast is amazing incredible. it doesn't even seem like it we i'm looking at the clock here. you've been here for an hour and a half already
1: it's incredible conversation man steve you are you are truly you're a wealth of knowledge and um yeah, you see, the, Gary
0: and I just sitting here going, oh, we "Yeah, need to say anything, yeah, we'll just love, love it. It's great.
1: No, it's <laughs> awesome." So, uh, man, thank you for thank you for coming uh, out to Tennessee. We're glad to have you. Uh, we're thankful to have you at our event. And uh, man, we'll just continue to be praying for you and lifting you up. That I appreciate God, that God will continue to uh, enlarge your territory and uh, the influence of your voice because God knows we need it. We need it in this nation, and we need to get back to having real conversations. Um, and I and I I really I I think this. Conversation about the border—it was eye-opening to me. That's an interesting concept to think about. That truly, everyone on both sides at this point, even those who were gaining a little bit or are gaining just enough, mm-hmm. have have both. I think we truly are in a season where everyone that we thought was in control, left or right on these on this issue, there is they are out of control, mm-hmm. which puts us in a really. Precarious situation here. You know let me. That,
2: I think that's a great point to close on. Yeah. Actually, is I'm just pondering
1: that for a what minute. COVID, the, what COVID the threat that brings to us? Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: What What is scarier than a cabal of shielded elites running the world? What's scarier is no one's in charge. <laughs> yes, and and exactly. I I am coming to the conclusion. I I, I thought about this during yes. COVID. If do I think elements absolutely plotted and planned this, you bet. Mm-hmm. Okay? But but I don't think when Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins were were funding, you know, EcoHealth Alliance grants in Wuhan that they thought they were making a bioweapon. We're just all part of the global community. We're going to make the next great vaccine and and be trillionaires, okay? I I think that that if this if this was really a well-coordinated Bilderberg, you know, Davos plot, some schmuck from Iowa named Steve Dace doesn't get to write two best-selling books about it. Maybe I sneak one. Un- Maybe I slip one past the goalie. I try to publish another one. Gets banned everywhere. You see what I am saying? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a bestseller list. Okay. I I think that if you've really got your plans on that much of a lockdown and you are that much in charge, like if you you can tell when they are that much in lockdown. How much Ukraine war footage have you seen in the last two years? <laughs> almost none. Yep. You can tell that they're in complete control of that agenda
1: not as much as we've seen from Gaza.
2: Correct. and Israel mm-hmm. because because we're getting nu- we can't we we suspect what we're being told is is right. a crock, but we can't get any you know empirical things out of there showing us that we're right, all right? The idea that they're in control of all this, I don't believe that's the case. That that and that that's where we get into the demonic and spiritual warfare, mm-hmm. okay? Because I, I think even the scarier proposition than a group of, of, of well-oiled and well-heeled elites are unshielded from these things called elections and are running everything. If they were, things would actually be run better than they are. Things would be more efficient than they are, okay? What's scarier than that is that no one's in charge, and it's chaos. And I am increasingly coming
1: to that conclusion, actually. And there's your daily dose of encouragement right here on the Freedom <laughs> Matters That's your devotional? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it.
2: (laughs) Thanks for coming in. You bet, guys. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it.